0: Heather Bishon used to work in bank security, and she would often get alerts on her phone about bank alarms going off.
1: Those alarms could be anything from a door being left open to um, a holdup alarm pulled for a robbery.
0: She oversaw physical security for 1,200 bank branches filled with cash, valuables, and customer records. It was a lot to protect. And so when Heather got an alert one day about a robbery, she wasn't that surprised.
1: So one afternoon, I was actually on my way home After a day at work, I had gotten a call. It was just the normal notification, hey, we have a robbery, more details to come. But this time,
0: it wasn't just a robbery.
1: By the time I'd gotten home and gotten an update from the team, it was that the robbery had turned into a hostage situation. Um, The robber had taken hostage a customer and um, numerous bank employees.
0: Hostage scenarios were not part of Heather's career plan. She got her first job at a bank out of high school. And as she got more interested in security, she focused on things like
1: fraud, money laundering and embezzlement. So I love puzzle solving and when I started to get into the space of fraud detection and fraud investigations, it was always like trying to solve a puzzle. Finding the trail of, of a potential fraud scheme or an embezzlement or, you know, phishing attempts, different things like that, It was just intriguing. You never knew where that trail would take you.
0: She eventually found her way to physical security. She had a mind for figuring out how to put together the puzzle pieces of operations, the officers, the procedures, the flow of people and different layers of access.
1: So if I go to an airport or if I go to a casino or I go to a hotel, right, I'm constantly looking around trying to figure out. You know where are the cameras? What are they doing for alarms? It's just, it just happens. I I can't even help it at this point.
0: Heather stayed at the same bank for twenty years. She kept getting promoted all the way to vice president, and then one day, right as she got home, she found herself in the most nerve wracking situation she'd ever been in—a hostage situation.
1: So I I locked myself in a room in, at the house. I have a family, and they know when things go on to just kind of leave me be and and let me do my work. Hours went by. The sun went down,
0: and the whole time, Heather was glued to her phone and her computer, getting constant updates from the field.
1: It was probably the scariest or most intense incident that I managed. So I was definitely pacing around the room, but it's kind of, when you've been doing security for a while, that heightened state almost becomes... It's just uh, an innate reaction, right? You kind of live in there and then you, you don't realize it while it's happening. You're making your decisions. You're calling the shots. You're doing whatever it is that you have to do to get through the incident.
0: But then the cameras went dark. There was no visual. Heather scrambled to the phone trying to figure out what happened.
1: We found out after the fact that police had cut power to the building as part of their strategy to lure the individual out. And ultimately, it resolved with no one being injured, and the police were able to get the suspect in custody. But it was just hours of of adrenaline, right?
0: Today, Heather is no longer protecting banks. She's protecting data centers. And on the surface, banks are not at all like data centers. Bank branches are located in shopping centers and operate from 9 to 5. They invite customers into their lobbies with couches, potted palms in the corner, and little jars of candy. Hyperscale data centers, on the other hand, are impressive industrial campuses. They're surrounded by fences and cameras, 24-7 patrols and guard kiosks.
1: They're not really generally public-facing, right? Very limited signage. But banks and data centers share a
0: mission. Banks secure people's valuables. Cash, account records, checks, even gold. Data centers secure our digital valuables.
1: That's what we need to protect.
0: This is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher. I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'm your guide through the physical places that make the internet run, places that very few people get to see firsthand. So far in this series, we've heard about how servers are designed, how they work together across a global network, and how they operate on clean energy. In this episode, what if? We're covering the mind-boggling what-if scenarios that security experts inside data centers prepare for, all to protect user data and keep the internet running. So as operations lead, you're trying to achieve 99.99999% reliability at data centers. You have to be prepared for anything to happen anytime. want to start With a list of potential disasters, you give me an affirmative if it's something you're thinking about or have dealt with. Power outages.
2: That's affirmative, Barry. We think of everything from electricity coming from the national grid down to the rack level device and how it gets power. Ruptured water supply. Absolutely. Something we've lived through. Wildfires. It's absolutely something we've thought and talked about. Tornadoes. Absolutely.
0: This is Nick Sadek. He leads central operations for Google's data center infrastructure. Nick makes sure the company's warehouse scale computers, more than 20 of them across the world, are ready to handle just about any scenario you might imagine. Hurricanes. Regular occurrence. Bears.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yes. There's some funny stories there we
0: might be able to touch on later. Before working at Google, Nick didn't have any direct experience with wildfires or tornadoes or bears. He was a material scientist at a steel mill. If you've ever looked into the front of an airplane engine and see those spinning blades, some of them were probably forged in Nick's plant. He worked with massive electrical transformers, heat exchangers, and 40-ton metal forges. It prepared him for working with heavy equipment at data centers, but it still didn't prepare him for the first time he visited a data center.
2: These acres of substation and high voltage national electric grid lines coming in, and buildings that sprawl onto more buildings that sprawl into more buildings and multi-stories and steel construction and massive city-sized chillers. And I I was just like, wow. Less than 1% of Googlers ever set foot inside one of these campuses. You have to have a business need. You have to be within Google data centers or have very senior level approval to get in. There's a very tightly controlled security review process,
0: background checks, all that goes into that. And there's very good reason for that. People's personal data, their professional data, and financial data, all this information rests in data centers. So when Nick visited a data center for the first time, he knew how exceptionally rare it was to get inside. It reminded him of an article he'd read listing the most secure facilities in the world.
2: There are things like the Pentagon, the CIA, Fort Knox, and Google data centers is on that list. And so when I got home that night from work, I kind of jokingly said to my spouse, like, hey, I was in one of the top 10 most difficult spots to access in the world. That first experience of walking into a data center and then onto the data center floor really will probably stay with me for the rest of my life.
0: Stephanie Wong is also one of the lucky few who have seen the inside of a data center. And the only reason she got approved to visit one was because Google Cloud customers, organizations like hospitals, banks, and credit card companies, kept asking her questions about security.
3: Do you, Google, have access to our data? What measures are in place to make your data center safe? And what happens if a natural disaster were to threaten a data center? Would my data be completely destroyed? Or is there redundancy built into it?
0: Stephanie's job title is developer advocate. It's a unique role. She talks both to software teams and the businesses who use cloud products, and she helps them to understand each other.
3: And one of the most common questions that we receive is, of course, whether people can go inside and check the inside of the data center themselves or go for a tour.
0: The answer, you might have guessed, is no. But with the proper approvals, Stephanie could go on a tour and explain what happens inside. So she collaborated with Google's data center team on a video about physical security, which you can now find
3: on YouTube. Hi, I'm Stephanie Wong, and I work for Google Cloud. While I could talk all day about cloud security, physical security at a Google data center is still pretty new to me. So today I'm on a mission to learn all about it by taking an inside look at the systems in place that protect customer data at a typical Google data center. Let's go.
0: And what was that journey like? Well, we're going to hear from Stephanie. She discovered that Google data centers have many layers of protection. We covered this a bit in episode two, but let's recap. Here's Heather Vachon again, who helps design the system of layers.
1: Yeah, so that's a common physical security industry practice. It's called defense in depth, right? And it is designing security in layers.
0: So the point is to give every employee only as much access as they need to do their jobs. But no more than that. Increasingly restrictive barriers also make it harder for bad actors to break in, something we'll talk about later. But first, approaching the campus. When Stephanie first saw the data center, the data center actually saw her. Positioned among the fences, guard kiosks, and 24-7 patrols, there are two types of cameras, standard cameras and thermal cameras.
3: So if somebody were to approach the fence or the building during nighttime, then those thermal cameras would be able to pick up movement and heat just as clearly during the night as they can during the day.
0: What you can't see is that the fences even detect minute vibrations. Say someone touching the fence or trying to climb over it. To get past this first layer, Stephanie had to stop at the guard kiosk and show her ID. The guards made sure she was on the approved list. Stephanie made it through layer one, the property boundary, and then layer two, the secure perimeter. From there, after walking into the lobby, Stephanie went through a secure entrance that looks like it could be from a James Bond movie. First, she badged in at the badge scanner. And next, an iris scanner to make sure you're not using someone else's badge. And finally, she walked into a big glass tube, like the scanners at airports that let only one person in at a time. Now Stephanie was in layer three, the main building interior. This was pre-COVID, and conference rooms and offices were full of people. But she was heading for a place that few people go even in normal times, layer four. This is where technicians and security staff monitor every part of the campus. But she hit a snag on the way. She was following one of the security staff about to walk through a badge-protected
3: door. And I was letting her walk through the door first, and I was about to walk through the door just as the door closed. And she basically just closed the door in my face. (laughs) And I was like, whoa.
0: For security reasons, there's no such thing as holding the door open for a friend at a data center. Here's Heather to explain.
1: So we want to make sure that only one person can get in at a time, right? Making sure that somebody doesn't follow you in or utilize your access credentials to gain access to a space unauthorized.
0: When I was at the Google Data Center in Oregon, one thing that struck me were the the sign saying, don't hold the door open for anyone, not even someone you've worked with for 15 years. It was one badge swipe, one person. It seems very ingrained in the culture.
1: It is ingrained in Google Data Center culture, but it definitely goes against all cultural norms, right? You would never close the door in somebody's face. Or if they're an employee of the same company, ask them, why do they need to be at a location why wouldn't they be allowed?
0: And this is exactly what Stephanie was wondering, at least for a split second, as her security escort closed the door in her face.
3: And then I realized that she wasn't being rude. She just really needed to do that or else it would probably uh, indicate to staff that a door had been
0: open for too long. These are the kind of rules that data centers have in place. Maybe a little surprising or unusual, but necessary.
1: Again, it's to protect the data and making sure that We're holding our customers and consumer information um, as secure as possible.
3: And if they do find that a door is open for too long, they actually need to check it out and send somebody to make sure that nothing fishy is happening in that area.
0: And all this time, a room full of security staff in Layer 4 was in fact monitoring Stephanie's every step on screens. They were in the Security Operations Center, or SOC. (laughs) The SOC is a space that Nick remembers well from his first visit. When he stepped inside, it felt like he was walking into a movie.
2: You think of, in the movies, a NASA launch room, launch control room, so where they're doing mission control for a big space event. And there's monitors on the walls and there's rows of benches and they're monitoring the data center, they're reacting to events happening.
3: Radios are buzzing and people are communicating, sending and relaying short messages to one another. And so sometimes you'll walk into the data center or the SOC especially and hear the beeps of radios that are just happening all over the place like, you know, radioing over to the lobby.
0: And one of the people you'll hear on the walkie-talkie is a security manager named Sivam Mania.
1: Yeah, I was in the police force for about eight years. And that actually prepared me a lot for this, uh, the,
0: the, the role that I took upon as a security manager. He manages the security team at the data center in Dublin, Ireland. It's common for security officers to have backgrounds in law enforcement. Sivam served in the Singaporean police's Coast Guard unit. So there
1: were definitely a lot of high-speed chases uh, with uh, unmanned uh, boats which were coming into our territorial waters. So it was very exciting in that sense. There was a whole lot of adrenaline rush when you're moving in a boat, which is 50 nautical miles per hour. So there was a lot of exciting times as well. These are the highly trained
0: staff that checked Stephanie in at the gate and monitor her progress through the layers. We have a
1: big security team. They do all aspects of security. They do patrolling. They do metal detection. uh, They ensure access control to the site. They make sure that the right people come to the data center.
0: Right next door to the security operations center is the control room. Looks a lot like the SOC, but instead of security managers monitoring cameras and the people coming in and out, it's technicians, and they're watching big digital displays of power and cooling systems.
4: We have about three stations set up, and each station has eight monitors, so you can monitor a lot of different parameters at once. You switch between buildings, you hear an alarm go off, it'll tell you which building, like the alarm is actually like, alarm, building five. This is Sean Woods a data
0: center facilities technician in South Carolina. The control room draws people like Sean, people with highly specialized training and pretty remarkable backgrounds.
4: So I was in the Navy for 10 years. I worked on nuclear submarines as an electrician, and that's basically where I got all my electrical training and experience was working on those submarines in the Navy.
0: The control room includes many military veterans, power plant technicians, and mechanics, the types of people who can keep a level head during power outages, hurricanes, floods, or other high-pressure scenarios.
4: There can't be any room for error. Every time you turn a switch on a submarine, like, something will happen. And same thing here. Anytime you turn a switch here, you could turn something off that's not supposed to be off. And it just puts you in that mindset to work in a critical environment where... You have to just be careful about everything you do.
0: You have to be especially careful in the room where Stephanie went next. She walked through another badge-protected door and then stepped onto the server floor. We talked about the magic of the data center floor in previous episodes. The hum of the servers, the whoosh of air, but few people get to experience it up close. There are very, very few technicians actually out on the floor. Access is incredibly restricted. Not even Heather Vishon, someone who manages Google's physical security, has regular access to the server floor.
1: In my normal day-to-day business, I don't have a business need to be there, right? And again, it goes back to really limiting who can access and get to the machine. So I do not have normal access to the DC floor and... um, would only request it if necessary.
0: And past the server floor, there's a layer that's even more secure, disk erase. This was the last stop on Stephanie's journey. Disk erase is where retiring hard drives get their data wiped so they can be reused or recycled. Or sometimes, for the maximum security precautions, they meet the shredder.
3: It's actually a large machine and you, you once you put the hard drive into its mouth, you'll see... You'll hear all these noises of crushing, but you don't actually see a claw physically crushing it, but you can hear it. It's like <laughs> And then the interesting part is that you'll see all the bits and pieces going up this conveyor belt, and it drops into this box full of all the shredded pieces. And then it's like clink no. Shh.
0: Those layers protect data centers on the inside. But what about from the outside? The list of threats is long and varied. Here's Nick Satic again. Asteroids.
2: Asteroids is an interesting one. I'd say we'll take it to a more macro level and say astronomical events, everything from solar flares to asteroids hitting the world. Electromagnetic pulses. Surprisingly enough, that is something that goes into our design and distribution and reliability of our data
0: centers. So yes. And sometimes the scenarios that Nick and his colleagues dream up are a little far-fetched. Zombies. (laughs) Zombies is a good one.
2: It's more of a lunchtime conversation. And so when you game out at a lunch table, what would you do in a zombie apocalypse? It's more common than not that folks are like, well, I'd come here to the data center.
0: If you've ever seen a zombie apocalypse show on TV, you know that the best way to survive is to find a building with fences, cameras, and multiple layers of security. Fortunately, these are data center must-haves. You'll also want a reinforced building that can withstand the harshest extreme weather. These would probably also hold up against the hordes of zombies. And you'll need amenities, too. I have good visibility, good security, good
2: resources, kitchens, showers, bathrooms, because we're set up for a 24-7 type operation.
0: Zombies may be far-fetched, but fires, hurricanes, and pandemics, they're not. It was interesting to hear the types of things from all
2: channels that would come up and be thrown at us as leaders in the field operating a data center of, have you planned for this or have you done that? And I would scratch my head time and time again and say, that's never going to happen. Like, why are we spending cycles and business resources to even, even have that conversation? These things really do happen. And what you learn from them is incredibly valuable in how you design data centers, how you operate data centers, how you staff data centers.
0: So, keeping data centers safe means having a lively imagination. It might even help to watch some zombie movies, or perhaps spy movies.
5: The first thoughts that pop into my head are movies like Ocean's Eleven, right? That, that's kind of where I start getting ideas. This
0: is Greg Crump, and when he's not watching fictional people try to outsmart security systems, he's trying to do the same thing in real life, at data centers. So the security
5: staff, they know who you are, right? Oh yeah, security knows who I am. So as I travel around to different locations, you know, there's eyes on me. Hey, what are you doing here today, Greg? (laughs) Or, uh uh-oh, there comes trouble,
0: (laughs) stuff like that. Greg is always scouting his next test. Here's Stephanie to explain.
3: We run dozens of drills a year, paying unannounced skilled adversaries to try to get past controls by any means necessary, except violence.
0: And this includes fake badges, people hidden in trunks, trying to sneak in through thick fog, all kinds of things. And after each testing attempt, they run a blameless post-mortem to figure out how to make the next attempt even
5: harder. In simple terms, Greg's job is about rooting out risk. Identifying risk Is simply just trying to brainstorm all the what ifs.
0: Data centers protect the personal data of billions of users. They also protect the data of cloud customers like banks, credit card companies and hospitals. So Google has to go to extraordinary lengths to ensure security. And that means a lot of testing.
3: Reactive measures are not enough when it comes to security. You have to build a multitude of proactive measures. And this means constantly pushing the boundaries of security through scenario planning, testing, and improvement of the technology and operations that we use. You must be proactive. The
0: industry jargon for Greg's expertise is called red teaming. There's a red team trying to break in and a blue team trying to keep them out. Very spy versus spy. It's common for banks, military facilities, and even other data centers to practice red team exercises. But Google takes it up a notch. Greg and his team try all kinds of things to get inside. Some are simple, some are much
5: more complicated. The simplest is disguise. We would say, okay, if we wanna beat this obstacle course, what is the best way to do it? And maybe it's to dress like someone that's supposed to be doing the obstacle course, right? So we had our team set up and we dressed up like pest control agents. We had the sprayers filled with water, of course, no chemicals, but we had a bunch of sprayers and clipboards.
0: They were wearing coveralls, sporting patches, embroidered with fake employee names and a fake pest control company name, Just Pest. And we were like, hello, we're here to spray for bugs. They started milling around, loitering.
5: They wanted to see how Google security would react. I mean, if you look back and like think about your own normal life, right? If you're at a place and you see somebody spraying for bugs, you don't really notice that. You don't care. They're doing their job. They're doing something. It doesn't matter to you, right? But the Google employees and security did notice. They started asking questions. And that's when security kind of got wise to us. You see a guard walk up, you know, and you kind of know. Because, you know, they're coming over directly towards you. And then they walk up and they're like, hey, how can I help you? The guards demanded
0: identification, at which point Greg's team gave them the proper code to alert them that this was actually a test. And after every one of these tests, Google uses the results to tighten security even further.
5: We have a full Very detailed report of every activity that occurred. And then we have a list of what
0: we just call findings. From these findings, Greg's team makes recommendations. Anything from increasing the brightness of lighting on a specific patch of ground to training staff on how to spot suspicious pest control employees. The security team then makes those improvements. Because we will test it again. And again, and again, and again. The point is to have rigorous security and reliability that doesn't just look fancy, it actually works.
1: Most people just see it as the security guard walking around checking cameras. But um, the level of technology that they use, the scenarios that they're protecting against, their heightened state of awareness to identify when um, something is suspicious or something malicious is taking place.
0: So if a bunch of friends and I decided we wanted to break into a data center. And we started climbing the fence at the same time to go steal
1: some machines. What would happen next? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you coming, and we're gonna stop you, so I wouldn't even recommend trying. And that's
0: our show. Where the Internet Lives is produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And please give us a rating if you're enjoying our journey together so far. In this episode, you heard from Heather Vichon, Stephanie Wong, Greg Crump, Sean Woods, and Sivan Mania, and our What If Scenario Pro, Nick Sadek, which reminds me, we never finished that bear story. Bears. Bears is a funny one. An employee climbed into a bear suit, approached the data center, and then did a little dance, just to see if security would detect them. The
2: good news is, it was all caught on our uh, security systems. People reacted, responded, and uh, quarantined that situation, to say. But people really both take their job extremely seriously, if you think about intrusion detection and processes and technology, and they also have a good time while doing it, dressing up in bear suits and kind of
0: giving their peers a hard time to say, hey, I'm here, see if you can catch me. Coming up in our final episode, what will the future of data centers look like when Moore's Law ends and quantum computing becomes mainstream? I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening.